0: I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America, chartered by Congress, to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. On today's show, we listen in to part of a great program on the future of online free speech that the Constitution Center hosted on the road in beautiful Los Angeles in partnership with the American Constitution Society and the Federalist Society. This is part of our Great Traveling Town Hall series where we're going across America with ACS and FEDSOC to promote constitutional debate. The first half of the program is a one-on-one conversation between me and Judge Alex Kaczynski of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit. You can find it now on the Constitution Center's YouTube channel and in coming weeks on our companion podcast, live at America's Town Hall. And today we'll pick up with the second half where Judge Kaczynski was joined by Cindy Cohn, Executive Director of the Electronic Frontier Foundation, and Eugene Volokh, the Gary T. Schwartz Professor of Law at UCLA, for a wide-ranging discussion about current issues in digital free speech. Let's get started. I want to jump right in. The judge said that, you know, you don't have to be on Facebook and you don't have to be on Twitter. But just a few days ago, the First Amendment Center at Columbia filed a lawsuit against Twitter saying that the president's decision to block people from his Twitter account violated their free speech rights because he engages in public communication on his private Twitter account. He's turned that into a limited public forum that should be subject to First Amendment rules. Fascinating case, a tough one. Eugene, you just wrote a really fascinating post uh, expressing skepticism about the claim. So tell us why you express skepticism, what the legal standard for a limited public forum is, and why you think the president's Twitter account doesn't qualify.
1: You know, I want to let Eugene answer the question. Yeah. I, I should just make it absolutely <laughs> clear. I was not aware of the case. Uh, so any comment I made before had did not. No, no, of course. W- should, no, I, I just want to make it clear. it yeah, should yeah. not be understood as
0: and and. And you can, and you'll speak and, or not, no, as you no, please. don't know, all this sort of yeah. stuff. If yeah. I
2: can offer a friendly amendment, uh, please. Uh, yeah, I, think, uh, I think that they just sent a nasty grab. Yeah. Uh, ah, uh, having they, they sent a letter to the president sort of implying that they may sue him if he if he continues to do that. Okay. That's my
3: understanding as well.
2: So here's the complicated question. Before we even get to the issue of whether, say, a government run a uh, Facebook page or a government-run Twitter feed as a so-called limited public forum, a place that's open for public commentary, we have to ask if this is the government acting. Now, it's true that it is a very important government employee acting, a very important officeholder acting, but it turns out that that's not the end of the story. I take this kind of personally, maybe I'm biased, but, you know, I'm a government employee. I don't have the power of President Trump or pretty much anybody, uh, but, uh, you know, I have some power. I certainly certainly get paid taxpayer money, and when I run my blog, that's actually part of my job. It's not required, but, uh, you know, faculty members get uh, some credit from the university for this is under the service rubric, kind of like you would if you were writing op-eds. But if I were to block a commenter from posting on the blog, uh, I don't think I'd be a government actor, even though I'm a government employee, even though people come to the blog because I'm a UCLA professor. Uh, To give you a couple of other examples, let's say a politician is giving a stump speech. It's pretty clear that there he is speaking as the person who is an office holder if he's already an incumbent, but not on behalf of the government. Uh, And let me give you one more example. Generally, the court has said, although this is hanging by a thread, who knows what will happen in years to come, that the government may not engage in speech that endorses religion. Now, where the line that line is drawn as to what's endorsement and what's not is a complicated question. There's also the question of when is it the government is doing this. And uh, Justice Stevens, joined by Justice Ginsburg, and they have a pretty broad view of these restraints on government. In Van Orden, one of the Ten Commandments cases said, well, when uh, politicians say, God bless America, or maybe even something more religious within their speeches, even speeches that are delivered on government occasions uh, by them because they're government officials, They really are speaking, that is wearing their individual politician hat rather than government hat. That even when you're speaking as a government office holder, some things you say, some aspects of what you're doing are you and not the government. So that's the question. And one way of thinking about it is there are two Twitter feeds, it turns out. One at real Donald Trump and the other at POTUS real Donald Trump was apparently set up, according to Twitter, by uh, uh, then not even thought to be by most, not even contemplated to be President uh, Trump in 2009. It, of course, was very prominent within the, um, within the election campaign uh, when he was not the president. And now he's continuing it in much the same tone. That's actually kind of surprising and shocking to some that it's much the same tone. On the other hand, there's the at POTUS account, which he also posts to, but that was inherited from President Obama. If there is a Twitter, uh, when President Trump leaves office, it'll be bequeathed to his, uh, uh, to his successor. It's POTUS, not Donald Trump. Now, I will say that Sean Spicer did say, I think, just just maybe yesterday, that what President Trump says in his Twitter feed is official statements. It's an interesting question. You're often bound by what your lawyers say. I'm not sure you're bound by what you your uh, 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 communications director or whatever his official title is, especially in this administration. So it's an interesting question. It's a closed question. Interestingly, this is being litigated right now quite heavily uh, in uh, three cases, uh, either two or three, depending on how you count them, in Loudoun County, Virginia, where a local, uh, where a local political <coughs> gadfly has complained about having his Facebook comments deleted from a local uh, prosecutor's page, from the Board of Supervisors page, and from the page run by the chair of the Board of Supervisors. The court said, well, in the prosecutor's page and the uh, Board of Supervisors page, those are limited public fora, you can't engage in viewpoint-based deletion. But as to the politician, the court said, well, that's a complicated story, and basically suggested there should be more fact-finding and maybe even a trial on that very issue, although what ultimately the touchstone will be was hard. So that's why it's a complicated question.
0: Fascinating. Cindy, I think you may be slightly more sympathetic than Eugene to the possibility that the president's Twitter account is a limited public forum. Tell us why. First, start with the easier question. If he were to block people from the POTUS account, would that be a... Easier case, and then tell us why you think the private account might be a limited public forum, too. I,
3: I, think, I think if he blocks um, from the POTUS account, it, it probably would be. I mean, that is, it was set up, uh, you know, if we we're looking historically, that was set up to be the President of the United States' voice and not the particular person who's in this seat. Um, you know, the. You know the the intelligence community has a Tumblr account I see on the record, which we jokingly on my community call "icon the record." But um, that uh, and and that is absolutely the public voice. The fact that it's on a private platform or any of those things doesn't change it. I think the tricky thing in this particular instance is in most of the other cases you have the public official saying no 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 I'm speaking in my private capacity I want to have a private capacity and a public capacity. I think if you put this question to this president he would might say the same thing that his press secretary said. And then I think it's then I think you he he's he's saying that I'm giving official commentary through this account. I think it would be very strange for the court to say, despite what you say we're going to say it's still personal he He announces policy from there. Um, and, and if that's the way he's using the account, then I think the fact that he didn't use the account in that way before he became president and then now is using it in that way, we shouldn't be stuck with how the account, account started. So to me, the question is a very interesting one and maybe ought to be put to POTUS. Well, well, what, do, what are you doing on that Twitter account? Are you being official or are you being private? I think if he's being official, then you know, you, you, he needs to live with the doctrine that that creates.
1: Can you then not shut it down?
3: He can create another one. He can create the private Donald Trump or whatever. He could shut it down. Yeah, he could
2: but What raises the question is, who is the real Donald Trump?
3: <laughs> for the ages. That's one for the ages, I think. But,
0: but what is the standard? So there's a case uh, called Pruneyard that I vaguely remember from law school involving shopping malls that allowed picketers. What was the standard, Eugene, that turned that into a limited public forum, and how does that apply
2: to so, Twitter? Uh, shopping malls for First Amendment purposes are private entities that that uh, are not bound by the First Amendment Uh, with a separate special exception for company towns where the company really owns the whole town but that's not so. California and about four other states in one form or another have taken the view that under state constitutional law there is a right of access of the public of public speakers, of speakers like leafletters and the like, to shopping malls, more or less on par with the access of the public as a whole to the open spaces. Not every shopping center, but kind of the big uh, city block size, more or less, or more shopping malls. So it's not that there's a First Amendment right of access, it's there's a state law right of access. And the question in Pruneyard was whether Pruneyard had a First Amendment right to block that state right of access. Uh, so uh, so uh, one thing that sometimes comes up is people say, well, Facebook and Twitter and Google shouldn't be allowed to exclude certain material on the grounds they think it's fake news or the grounds that they think it glorifies terrorism or so-called hate speech or whatever else. Uh, and uh, because they are like, the, even more so than the shopping malls become the public square. Uh, and uh, uh, that would require, that would require since it's, I think, very difficult to see how states could regulate that. That would require kind of almost a federal common law decision, which I can't see courts doing, uh, or a federal statute. But it's an interesting question. What if Congress said to Twitter or Google or Facebook, you can't restrict speech in particular ways. And they said, we have a First Amendment right to. It. I actually was uh, cons- uh, wrote a paper consulting for Google, uh, taking the view that Google actually had a First Amendment right to control its search engine results. But that's an issue that could potentially could be out there. But that would be a right of, of either state law or s- state or federal statute, not a federal First Amendment law.
0: That was a fascinating and important paper that Eugene wrote that you should check it out, basically saying that because the Google algorithm was the product of Google's mind, then efforts to regulate it might violate the First Amendment. Sweeping implications that would make it hard to regulate Google in all sorts of ways. Cindy, do you want to respond to Eugene's provocative claim that Google has a First Amendment right to be free from that kind of regulation? Well,
3: no, I think they kind of do. I, I, I think I, this is the problem. We're debating, and Eugene and I don't disagree well, enough. We're not debating. Trying. I mean, we're talking. I'm trying to find something where I disagree with him. But, um, no, I think you're right as far as it goes, but I actually think that that, um, that, that might n- that might win Google some arguments and cause it trouble in others. And I think that um, it it creates a situation in which Google's argument that you know it's just the algorithm. We don't have any say in how this goes, you know, the kind of idea that you know the best ideas rise to the top and that Google's not directing how those search results come out in a way that, say, favors Google, which is an argument that, it, that has been made in the European antitrust context and tried in the American context, it gets a lot weaker, right? Because Google's saying, actually, yeah, we have a complete right, and indeed we do. And in fact, it's true, Google does um, juke the stats. you know, G- Google Controls what comes up in their search results. It's not magic. It's not, it's not, um, it's not completely algorithmic in the way that you might think. You know, the machine did it. There's a lot of control that Google has over what the search results come in. I think that that's an important point, and it's good for the public to know that because it might make them decide that they want to use a different search engine. And there are other search engines out there. There are competitors who would um, love the opportunity to demonstrate to you that their exercise of their First Amendment. might be better for you in your searching days than, than Google's and you know, my, my, my view about all these platforms is that you can get locked into the idea that the one that's dominant today will always be the dominant one and it can lead you to Alta think. Vista yeah exactly those days those days when i went to yahoo first thing in the morning but um but um that that, that's just that's not my experience of how digital technologies work and you know i already i work with a lot of kids you know facebook is for grandpa honestly kids are not on facebook um these this getting trapped in the moment and you know google's the dominant search engine right now I don't use Google. I use one called DuckDuckGo that doesn't track me. Uh, it's a variant of Bing. There you know, there are other contenders in this marketplace for whom uh, the, the, the opportunity to come in could be blocked if the government decided that this one was the one and we were going to regulate it like it's just the one. So for some kind of broader competition and kind of future of digital, and you know, I'm not... I don't really fit neatly into either the Federalist Society or the American Constitution Society boxes, but I am a big fan of innovation and development of technology. And I, I worry about some of these doctrines because they can actually lock in one player. And so I think you're exactly right that Google has a First Amendment right to decide what goes in its search engine, and all the rest of us ought to take that into account and decide whether we want to use it.
0: Judge, uh, you're not going to... Comment on future cases, but you've written a lot of really important digital free speech cases. Um, One of them was the Chacker case, where you vacated the sentence of an individual who was charged with violating supervised release condition that said that he can't stalk or harass people by posting personal information or defaming their character on the internet. You you reversed that on First Amendment grounds. Uh, Tell us why, and uh, and 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 maybe tell us about other of your favorite digital free speech. I don't opinions. remember. You don't remember?
1: <laughs> I've written hundreds of opinions. I don't remember. You,
0: you, you said that it was crucial uh, uh, that uh, it, it, was. it was not <laughs> defamation, and, and, uh, and, and you, you said that there had to be wide uh, grounds to criticize people on the internet, even if it was truthful or hurtful.
1: Well, reconstructing, uh, um, uh, you lose a lot of rights when you commit a crime. And uh, uh, particularly if you get supervised release means, in a sense, you're being released earlier. The sentence could be longer, but the judge gives you supervision so that you're not free afterwards to, uh, uh, when you get out, uh, to be like any other citizen because you've got uh, people looking over your shoulder. The question becomes to what extent and what degree do, um, uh, can the government uh, place restrictions on you? And if I remember the case correctly, is uh, the question becomes whether or not conditions that limit your ability to use the internet have to be related to the crime, or whether this is just something that the government can impose on you uh, uh, because they want to keep closer tabs on what you're doing. And um, I guess what I must have concluded in that case Uh, which probably people ask me about my opinions all the time, and it it sounds like I've had my law class write them, but it goes in one uh, part of the brain, and then I make room for something else. Um, uh, But um, uh, this is very common for for judges. to. uh, There's a whole series of restrictions, including the fact that they can come into your house, um, with much less than probable cause and search and make sure they're not still using drugs. So if you were somebody that used drugs or was a drug dealer, it makes sense that you give up this, int- this uh, uh, right to privacy and this constitutional right to, 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 uh, uh, to have a warrant before they can enter your home um, because you've committed a crime, it's related to drugs, uh, so um, it's, uh, it, it makes sense to, instead of keeping you in prison longer, where you could, you know, of course you have no privacy at all, we let you out, but we restrict that aspect of your, of your uh, uh, privacy by letting the police come in on less than probable cause. Uh, the same thing as to um, the, uh, the internet, uh, there are very frequently we see situations where judges will add a condition uh, limiting uh, the degree to which um, to which uh, somebody who served prison time can use the internet. I've done it myself. I sit at the judge every so often, and I had a, 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 a I've had cases involving let's say child pornography. Uh, as I think. Most people know. Uh, certainly, I know because I see get a lot of cases. Uh, um, child pornography is now almost universally obtained uh, uh, through the internet, uh, and uh, so uh, and we have police out there uh, trawling the internet, pretending to be young girls or young boys, and and uh, you know it's a necessary evil. But uh, that's that's what they have to do to catch people who do that kind of thing. And then when that happens and they get out, there are restrictions on what they can do on the internet. Um, what we were trying to do in that case, I think, was to say it's not unlimited. The internet has lots of functions. There's lots of things you do in the internet. And uh, simply prohibiting you from using it altogether is a very serious restriction. It has to be something that's closely related uh, to, or re- reasonably related to the crime you've actually committed.
2: So I'm happy to tell you, Judge, that uh, you were on the panel, but I think it was a uh, per curiam memo dispo. So maybe you just read it. And didn't <laughs> write it. That's my, that would be my suspicion, so.
1: Ah, well, so, oh, so it was, was, was uh, it was
2: unpublished. Yeah. It was an unpublished member dispute. It was oh, Kaczynski, uh, Wardlaw,
1: Corman. So probably one of the. Oh, it's probably Corman. Oh,
2: uh-huh.
1: <laughs> no, I'm saying, I, I, I love Judge Corman. He's uh-huh. sitting with us. I'm sitting with him on Friday. He's, this he's a was very a, good guy.
3: This was an early problem that we faced in you know, the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Spindle around um, for 27 years now, so we predate the World Wide Web. And early on, we would find a lot of these sentences where the judges would be like, "You just can't touch." The internet, you know, your fingers can never touch a keyboard again, and there were a series of cases, and I don't. Uh, this uh, this was one of them where we began to see members of the judiciary, and, and I think Judge kaczynski has been a leader in this because he was he's kind of been involved with computers and geeky stuff for longer than a lot of his colleagues, kind of recognizing that this was a much broader restriction than it might seem to um, the judge who was issuing it, because judges don't apply for jobs. They don't know that right now you basically cannot get a job if you don't have access to the internet. You know the, the days where you looked in the back of the classified ads and circled it and then went down to the place and got your job, those are gone now. You have to be online to find out about jobs. You usually, many, many jobs you cannot get unless you can submit your resume over the internet. Um, and be engaged in a conversation to schedule an interview or whatever. And this is this is not just white collar jobs. This is all the way down to people who are, um, you know, filling in, you know, as a as a busboy when somebody's sick. This all happens over the internet. And and I think it's it's another one of these um, situations where the more members of the judiciary and prosecutors um, have gotten. To understand how the technology works for the rest of us, the less we've seen these kinds of bad decisions. There are still places where we where we we have work to do, and I think the third party doctrine is, is one that's ripe for this, where the realization that this idea that you're, you know, that 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 giving your information to a third party didn't mean that you waived all privacy interests, which to me is a kind of a fundamental intellectual problem where you're equating privacy with secrecy, and I don't think privacy and secrecy are the same thing at all. Um, that, that that now more and more people are beginning to to use all of these technologies. They rely on them, and they're starting to realize, you know, this third-party doctrine doesn't fit with the way I live my life at all or my expectations about my life at all. And hopefully we'll we'll see the Supreme Court take a swipe yeah, at I, it.
1: I hear you can't be president if you don't have a Twitter account. Apparently.
3: <laughs> I, uh, I brought up the
0: uh, har- harassment case because it raises the question of, regulating hate speech on the internet. And I want to get to the pressure points in digital free speech doctrine. There's growing pressure on the platforms like Facebook and Google to regulate terrorist incitement as well as hate speech. Europe regulates it broadly. Under the US, our standard is that you can't regulate speech unless it's intended to and likely to cause imminent violence. That comes from Justice Brandeis's beautiful opinion in the Whitney case, which I would love you all to read and be inspired by, and was affirmed by the Supreme Court in the 1960s. Judge Kaczynski, is that the right standard for regulating hate speech, and are you concerned by pressures uh, from all sides to relax it online?
1: You know, we've lived with the Whitney standard for a long time. Uh, I, I don't think I've ever seen, maybe Eugene remembers, have you ever seen a case where you've actually seen Whitney, uh, uh, where the Whitney standard has the been met?
2: incitement, I don't think so. Solicitation of a very specific so, crime, pretty common. Yes, yes. But so general rare. incitement, very rare.
1: So it seems to me uh, we've had, what, 80 years of uh, Whitney. Uh, where you haven't had a single case where somebody has done uh, I, I don't see how you, uh, in person, uh, I don't know how you can come up with that on the Internet. I suppose uh, one could use the, the, um, the Internet Twitter or Facebook or something to gather people together to, for joint action. Yeah, flash mobs. Yeah,
2: Twitter Twitter sent tweet out a message saying, "Come to this place. We're going to burn it down right now."
0: C- come, come to Jeff's house and burn it now. Right. That would qualify.
1: A- 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 Jeff's house at one, two, three, four. Yes. Uh, Maple a- May- Street. Yeah. Yeah, it's a little exactly.
2: complicated because if you say you've been there, <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> hard to find. Yeah. Take the damn street
3: later, right? I mean, in Claremont Hardware, that's what he said. So, and that was protected.
2: Well, so here's what's complicated: is if you actually say come and burn down this house. Maybe not even right now. If you're very specific about the house, that may actually be punishable solicitation. Well, What people haven't focused as much on as in the incitement uh, doctrine, but the court has recognized, is solicitation of crime. Basically asking someone to commit a very specific crime uh, is punishable even if, there's, if it's not solicitation for imminent crime. If I'm, if I'm trying to urge you to... Uh, to uh, I, I want you to kill somebody. I mean, if I, of course, if I pay you money, then, then that becomes clearly more than speech. But even if I don't, even if I just urge you to do it, and if it's a very specific target, that's punishable solicitation. So, punishable, so incitement has to do with broader statements. We should revolt. We should attack police stations as opposed to burn down this particular station. What's
0: remarkable about this discussion is it sounds like all three of you agree that the standard, whether it's incitement or solicitation, should be extremely narrow and limited to cases where the violence is imminent. And yet we are seeing, both on college campuses, pressures to ban speech that's offensive. And on the internet, Facebook and Google do, in fact, ban speech that disparages groups on the basis of- Not Google.
2: Maybe uh, Twitter, but not Google. Not to my
0: knowledge. Uh, Google had, I, I won't get into the details of their policy, but they had a decision about whether to remove YouTube, sorry. I mean, uh-huh. the, the YouTube oh, 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 I'm sorry, yeah, 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 yeah. Google owns YouTube, yes, exactly. but I, 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 I was thinking of search Facebook and YouTube have mm-hmm. uh, hate speech policies, and of course, Europe allows the banning of hate speech entirely. Is there a gap between this constitutional if standard? In
1: Google will fight for the right to list hate speech. Remember right. Gonzalez? More, say more. Well, that was the case. Well, I lost that one, but that was the case involving the...
2: Uh... Oh, Garcia. Garcia. Uh, yeah. sorry, I said Gonzalez. Yeah. Garcia, sorry. Yeah. Uh,
1: the, the Garcia, the, the, the um, woman who was in that video uh, where she played a role, and then she was dubbed to say something disrespectful of Muhammad. Yes, the, the uh,
0: Innocence of the Muslim video. Uh, uh, I'm sorry?
1: The, the Innocence of the Muslim video. Innocence yeah. of the Muslim video. Yes. And and, and uh, she was then subject to a fatwa, and, uh, mm-hmm. did I pronounce it correctly? And, and she had bodyguards. And um, Cindy filed a brief I, I I guess. I disagreed and, uh, with you. See, so yeah, I can debate yeah, with you yeah, on this. There we go. There we go. I think maybe Eugene might have disagreed with I brief against me. Uh, well, no.
3: she, she tried to make a claim in copyright, and so from the get-go, she was kind of in the wrong part of the law um, to claim that as an actor in the play, in the movie. She had to make movie, a claim
1: in copyright if she wanted to get Google to pull it down. Yeah,
3: well, because the law doesn't let her do it the other way, but that's not a reason to go use the wrong box. That's the reason to go to Congress and say, give me the right box, um,
1: so... I think when you said the wrong box, you committed a trademark infringement. <laughs> oh, no.
3: <laughs> this, is, this is a fascinating...
0: This was a fascinating and important... It was. culmination to an even broader question, though, which is worth telling because it crystallizes the incredible power that these platforms have. So this case, ladies and gentlemen, arose from this Innocence of the Muslim video, which was a very cheesy uh, sort of pageant play that some... Uh, people of the Muslim faith found offensive and the claim was that it had caused the Benghazi riots. I think all people of of any taste found it offensive because it was very lame. But uh, it criticized the Prophet Muhammad and the claim was that it was causing the Benghazi riots, a claim that was later debunked. So both President Obama and the President of Egypt are calling on Google and YouTube to remove the video. They're not bound by the First Amendment because they're not the government, so they looked at their content policies, which prohibit the criticism of religious uh, religions in general, but not religious leaders in particular. Where did that distinction come from? It turns out a 27-year-old Bowdoin graduate who was working for Facebook at the time just read it in John Stuart Mill and wrote it into the hate speech policy. There's no grounding in the First Amendment. But after looking at the video, they concluded that it was a criticism of the prophet, but not of Muslims in general, and therefore they left up the video, and that decision proved to be wise in light of the fact that the riots later proved to be caused by something else. So Judge, does that lead you to reconsider your statement that who cares what the Facebook and Google, YouTube policies are, because they're just private companies? I mean, they were determining, that decision to, to determine whether or not people from around the world could see this incredibly newsworthy video.
1: No. I mean, I think they enti- were entitled to to, um, uh, to fight for it. I thought it was very cheesy of them. And I asked the lawyer in the audience, you know, why are you standing there spending your clients' money? to defend something that is not only highly offensive, but also dangerous. I mean, you know, you're a private company, You are not you know, a government can't back down. I mean, if, if it's policy and uh, there's a constitutional right involved and they, you know, the uh, government can't back down, a private company can just say, you know what? We're just not gonna let it happen. We're not gonna let it happen. It's our uh, sandbox and we, we are going to not let people play in it. Uh, that, that causes kind of a disruption. And they said, no, there's a principle involved. And I don't know. I didn't see what the principle was. They could just say, we have a rule, and we're going to make an exception because we're a private company.
3: Well, they certainly could have, but I think they made the right decision. First of all, it was immediately debunked. This was an extremely newsworthy piece. It was newsworthy at the beginning because it was claimed that it started a riot. It was newsworthy later because this was the thing that they made up to try to claim that it started a riot. It was newsworthy both times. Um, and I think the other principle that, that you know, like it or not, I, I, I moonlight as a copyright wonk is that you know, copyright infringement is a, is, is a really if you start letting people use, the 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 law that lets you get an immediate takedown for copyright infringement when their problem is really not a copyright problem then we've lost something important in the first amendment which is this idea that you have to make a showing that somebody's really done something wrong at a very high level before you get to set, you get to require a company to censor them And we have an exception in copyright. It's very easy to just send a takedown notice and get something taken down. So if if you think somebody's libeled you, you have to go to a much higher standard to get something taken off the Internet. If you claim that there's copyright infringement, you get it down first, and then there's a complicated process about whether it gets to go back up again. I tend to think that the standard for copyright is too low, not that the standard for defamation and other things are too high. what we see is people gaming it, trying to pretend like something's copyright when it's not so they can get that immediate censorship power. And I think Google didn't want to let that pathway grow because they don't want to be in the censorship business. They want to be in the providing of information business. So I think that, I mean, I don't know what the lawyer told you, but that's why we thought Google did the right thing.
0: Eugene, not, not on this copyright question, but on the broader question. Should Google and Facebook be allowed, uh, sh- should they abide by the First Amendment, or is it okay that they're banning far more hate speech than the First Amendment would allow it to be
2: banned? Well, whenever talk comes to hate speech, I always want to know what exactly is meant by hate speech. Um, I also think it's important to figure out what the particular context is. So I think that Google is different, it seems to me, from Facebook and is different from YouTube in, in various important ways. So for example, when it comes to fake news, actually, when I go to Google, I go to Google because I want to find out often the answers to questions. It's an important part of the service that Google provides to me is that, is that they try to do something in order to make this information as relevant to me as possible. And for most of us, what makes information relevant in large part is its accuracy when it's factual information. So, so if I search for capital of Afghanistan, and it turns out there's some, there's some pull pranks on people searching for capital site that somehow a search engine optimized itself to give the capital as being uh,
3: Bucharest. Atlanta,
2: Bucharest. Pardon? no, Bucharest, <laughs> exactly, uh, then it would be a service for Google to, to, uh, to uh, uh, downgrade that, because I really want to know that it's Kabul. Uh, And uh, on the other hand, it may be different when it comes to Facebook uh, 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 posts or or Twitter posts. Um, So so I think it actually varies uh, in, in some measure. It's really hard, I think, for me to figure out how private businesses should operate in these areas, in part because they may also have their own interest in just distancing themselves and saying, we do not want to participate in the spread of this particular kind of information. But I do think that one of the problems that they face, similar to the problem the government faces, is a lot of these definitions are so broad that if if applied honestly, they would restrict a lot of speech that clearly ought to be protected. So the result is they're not gonna be applied honestly, in which case the businesses would understandably face pushback for not applying them honestly. For example, what is hate speech in the context of uh, of religion? Often it's defined, if I'm remembering right, some of the definitions from Europe, is it's speech that encourages violence, well, it's one thing, but or hostility or discrimination based on, among other things, religion. A lot of that speech is completely legitimate, in fact, quite possibly correct. Now, I don't support, for example, such speech that is sharply critical of Muslims generally, because there are a billion Muslims. And there are a lot of Muslims with a lot of different views. There there are a lot of Christians with a lot of different views. But there are particular, denomination isn't, I think, quite the the correct term, but there are particular strands of Islam, just like there are particular strands of Christianity, that I think many of us take the view that those are bad they're bad ideologies. Religion, after all, is ideology. If you can believe that communism is bad, if you can believe that Nazism is bad, why not believe that particular jihadist strands of Islam are bad? Or that Satmar Judaism, not a violent religion, but one that is faulted for various reasons, are bad? Or that Scientology is bad? So either... Uh, either the rule really is that you can't go out there and sharply criticize Scientology and urge people to be hostile to Scientology or to uh, jihadist uh, Islam or something like that, or even though that's ostensibly the rule, well, that's not really the rule. In some religions, it's okay, but other religions, no. So I think that's a good reason, I think, for these, inst- just as a matter of self-interest uh, for uh, these institutions to try to, uh, to try to minimize any such policing they do.
3: I mean, I, I think that there's um, a whole other area where uh, we put a lot of pressure on the platforms to do more, which is empowering users to control their experience, um, especially in the context of Twitter or Facebook. They have abysmal ability for you to decide you don't want to see something that shows up in your feed. The abysmal ability to block people. They've gotten much better. The pressure, the pressure on them to try to do a lot of this kind of centralized censorship I get nervous about for all the same reasons. Like anytime you make somebody king of what other people speak, what other people see, whether it's p- government, it's especially problematic, and I agree with the judge, that's a, a whole other category of problematic. But even if you make a private entity king of, of what everybody else s- sees they're going to make mistakes, they're going to get played. Facebook gets played all the time. There are armies of people on Facebook trying to convince the Facebook censors that the pro-independence Ukrainians are all Nazis and the anti-independence Ukrainians are all Russian spies and sometimes they're right and sometimes they're not. Believe me, those people that Facebook pays minimum wage to try to sort out what's true or not are not better at figuring this out than the US State Department is, and it doesn't do that good a job. So whenever you create a centralized censorship thing, they're going to get played, they're going to get it wrong, they're going to do this. So our pressure on the companies is always push this power down, let your users have a lot more control over what they see, let them choose their own adventure about what they want to see and what they don't want to see, Um, especially with regard to hateful things, harassing things, things like that. where. You know, Twitter is much better now, but it had an abysmal record for the longest time, where people who were the subject of a lot of this harassment had very few tools on Twitter to, you know, short of leaving, to to make it stop, make it not be their experience. And they've gotten better, and I think they'll continue to. I think I hope that that's where the pressure is. I'd like to see, rather than censorship push to censorship, a push towards giving people better tools, and they could be tools that they do together. You could subscribe to the, you know, I want to see the. The Reform Jewish feed, or I want to see the you know hippies for Jesus feed, and 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 you know have that kind of control, rather than thinking that these black big platforms are going to be magically good at telling you, who, you know, who's harassing, what's hate speech, what's not.
0: Uh, we have time for just uh, I think two questions, and they're excellent. The first relates to this question of who's making the decisions on the platforms and that is the new European right to be forgotten. So this is this new right that the European Court of Justice has recognized that says that uh, anytime if we were in Europe and you felt that the panel was going on too long and I was a boring moderator and you tweeted that, that Jeff is boring, then I could sue under the right to be forgotten and say my dignity had been affronted and Google would have to decide if I were a public figure and if your tweet were in the public interest and if they guessed wrong then Google would be liable for up to 2% of its annual income, which last year was $60 billion. That concentrates the mind. And the Google, as a result, has removed about 43% of all the takedown requests it's received for truthful but embarrassing speech, including about articles on the right to be forgotten itself. So the questioner asks, and it's a great question for the judge, is the right to be forgotten, if it were adopted in the US, consistent with the First Amendment? Judge.
1: No. No. <laughs> uh. I mean that's another uh, instance of the government making decisions about what's right and what's wrong, what's truth and what's false, and that's a very dangerous path. I mean history has shown many, many instances where people uh, with authority have just gotten it wrong. Um, going back to Galileo, you know, I mean it, it's uh, so so. I know I, I I'm horrified by. Uh, I mean I sort of understand it. Uh, You know, they they have rules against um, disparaging the Holocaust, and, um, uh, uh, you know, they they all sound good in practice, uh, uh, I'm sorry, in theory, but in practice, uh, it's uh, it's a total nightmare, and uh, this is not uh, private companies making decisions. This is the government deciding, and this is sort of egging on private companies to make decisions. That err on the side of exclusion, so this is not a free market situation no, at, all. at all.
2: So let me give you a particular story. I'll be blogging about it, but so far I haven't. And so far a, pre, I a
1: blogging know. preview. Nobody else has written <laughs> You are there. Wow. So it's this
2: good. is. You are the first group of people to actually hear about Derek Thorworth or this aspect of Derek Thorworth's life. Uh, Derek, of, of Derek Thorworth. Derek Thorworth. We'll find out. You'll yes. find out. I mean, he will not be seats. forgotten. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Derek Thorworth. Uh, was a constable. So it's a law enforcement officer in Houston. And uh, several years ago, he was uh, prosecuted for uh, punching an arrestee, a fellow by the name of Ferry Rounds, who was sitting in the back seat of his police car. And last February, February of 2016, he pleaded guilty to official oppression. That's the name of the crime in Texas. He pleaded guilty. This was written up on the Houston Channel 2 television station's website couple of days ago I see there was a request sent to Google to get de indexed get hidden from from searchers this article on this new uh, the station site now it turns out that Google will sometimes Uh, listen to these requests or uh, uh, abide by these requests if they come with a court order saying this material has been found to be libelous. And it turns out that raises all sorts of interesting questions. There's massive fraud in the system They found over 65 forgeries submitted to Google on those grounds. But this was not based on a libel finding. This was based on his saying, I got a non-disclosure order from Texas courts. Now, nondisclosure orders, which are similar to when in some places are expungement orders, are a form of very limited right to be forgotten. It's right to be forgotten with respect to government files. So normally it's an order that is sent to the government, to court, saying don't release this, police department saying don't release this, except maybe to a few people who are doing particularized background checks. So I thought, well, that's an interesting, interesting story that this police officer is trying to, or former police officer is trying to get this hidden. But incidentally, one rationale he gives for why it should be hidden is he says, I still have a Texas um, uh, peace officer's license, and this is jeopardizing my credibility, The story, which I think it should. I think yeah. it's, remember, right to be forgotten means a right to hide information, coercively hide it from other people. You can't just say, I have a right to be forgotten. Right to forget, well, that's between you and your memory. Right to be forgotten is a right to get into other people's memories uh, and the tools they use to supplement them. But there's more. I talked to Thorworth. it was a short, intense conversation. But it also bears out some other inklings I've gotten from other sources. He says the order he got from the judge actually ordered news media and social media to also remove their articles. And I understand that, that, the, that, the, that this television station is trying to get that order vacated. But the problem is I can't tell you anything other than I understand and I've been told because I can't get my hands on the order because it's sealed. And I can't get my hands on what I believe based on what I've heard are the papers challenging the order because they're sealed. So we've got a sealed proceeding to deal with a sealed order that I think exists that purports <laughs> to try to gag a, uh, a, a news site to try to get these things hidden. And some part of it may just be poor implementation, but inevitably, if you've got the right to be forgotten, then any proceedings in regard to it have to be themselves secret. And any accounts of those proceedings have to be themselves held secret. And so as a result, if we think those proceedings are actually operating badly, we can't tell because we have no access to those records. And if we get access to those records, we will be forced to pull them down by the right to be forgotten. So uh, this, is not, this game, I think, is not worth the candle. The only way to make this worth, work is to have a pervasive censorship system that, among other things, will benefit those people whose past misconduct, I think, should not be forgotten.
3: And I, I think that... I mean, I... I'm we, talking about
2: you, Derek Thorworth.
3: Yeah. <laughs> Clearly. Um, yeah, let me know what happens in there. Um, mm-hmm. but, uh, but, but it is the case, you know, when we look at the people who've asked for the right to be forgotten, at least in the first couple of years, they're overwhelmingly wealthy right? there are people who have the resources to do this. And I think that's the other valence in some of these kinds of things. And it ends up being that rich people get to hide their misdeeds and poor people don't. And I think that's something that we ought to think about as we think about a lot of these things. And, and it, I see it in, again, in some of these hate speech things and some of the efforts to try to get Facebook to do censorship. You find that people who can... Uh, martial resources end up being able to censor people who cannot. And, and this bothers me a lot because part of the reason I got so interested in the internet when I was a little girl in Iowa from Iowa was the idea that it could democratize people's voices that 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 you didn't have to own a printing press to be able to speak to the whole world you didn't have to have those kinds of resources and i worry that a lot of these things and they're not the only ones but could end up recreating some of the inequities that that existed in the you know analog world of speech in the digital world and if that happens then we will have lost one of the things that you know, was pretty cool about the online world.
0: Last question, and then some uh, takeaways uh, for the audience, um, and this is a great one. Regarding incitement on the internet, a woman is currently being prosecuted for sending social media messages to her ex-boyfriend urging him to commit suicide, and he did. Is she protected by the First Amendment? It's the most tragic story that's in the on, online and in the paper today. Uh, Judge, you wrote that incredible how-to-build-a-bomb case, which might be... Uh, Relevant here, but what are the legal standards for deciding whether this woman, who's basically saying to the boyfriend, "Do it, do it, kill, kill, kill yourself," and he did, uh, does that qualify as incitement, or is it protected by the First Amendment? Just describe the law as it exists now, as you understand it, without making a judgment on the particular
1: case. Well, I, I think it's what uh, Eugene said: there's a difference between uh, uh, encouraging a particular crime uh, and uh, and uh, so sort of generally. Um, uh, inciting somebody, uh, and in this case, it's not the difference between speaking to an individual person as opposed to a crowd, this is a question that you're addressing in a particular person. Now, I don't remember whether suicide is a crime. Uh, no. It's not? No, it turns Attempt- out to be Attempted important. suicide?
0: No. Assisted suicide was. Yes.
1: Assisted suicide. In many
0: places. And it's suicide was at some point, because we know from the assisted suicide case that Justice Scalia said it was good to make it a crime so right. that people But not but anymore. not anymore. anymore. Uh,
1: so, uh, uh, I mean, I need to know a little bit more yeah. about the case, and uh, this is a pending case? Yeah, it's just it's going on there. Yeah, I probably shouldn't say yeah. <laughs> anything about the pending
2: case. <laughs> Let um, me tell you a few twists on that. So first, I tend to think that i a specialize statute that bans essentially urging a particular person to commit suicide, and I mean seriously and not as a joke or as a hyperbole, but seriously. I think ought to be valid under the solicitation exception. It's not a crime, but I do think you could say it's close enough to the reasons we don't make it a crime, but it's still generally thought to be very uh, uh, harmful behavior uh, that is comparable to crime. Uh, there are interesting questions of what do we do in situations where it's much more sympathetic, like with mercy kill, not mercy killing quite, but, but talking to people who are on death's door and in great pain and wondering, should they commit suicide or not? But bracketing that, I think in principle- But, but, but
1: that's the problem, isn't it? You, you have to make a judgment call. Right, right, but you could
2: say, look, yeah, even there, you know, just like assisted suicide in that situation we ban, even if we might sympathize, so this, the solicitation we might ban too, but, Interestingly, the one time that came up, before the Minnesota Supreme Court, the Minnesota Supreme Court struck down the solicitation statute. Now what's complicated is this woman in Massachusetts is being prosecuted for involuntary manslaughter. The focus is not on what makes this so shocking, which is the purposeful action, but because it's involuntary manslaughter, which focuses on negligently and recklessly bringing around death, the rationale would apply in situations where there isn't such a purpose. It could be, well, somebody broke up, Jane broke up with John, and she did it in an unusually cruel way, and John had told her that if she leaves him or if she cheats on him, he'll kill himself, and sure enough, that's what, she, what he did. Therefore, we'll prosecute her, because after all, she was causal factor in the crime, and she was reckless. Or negligent, criminally negligent in that. I think that would be outrageous because that would be putting essentially everybody in a position where the law as to what they may or may not do is being driven by threats from their from uh, societal people who may be in their lives, or somebody saying, "You can't." Or so if you fire me, I'll commit suicide. And the employer says, "Sorry, you're just you're just screwing up all the time. I have to let you go." The guy commits suicide. I take it the employer shouldn't be prosecuted. But again, if this rationale is, is adopted, the, the door will be open to that. Now again, what you could say, well, that's diff- this case is different because here it wasn't recklessness or negligence. There was evidence was purposeful, repeated uh, calls for that. The problem is the criminal homicide, the involuntary manslaughter statute doesn't have room there for distinguishing Uh, purpose from recklessness or, or negligence. Its whole point is to punish the recklessness or negligence. So the more specific statute, which I, but not the Minnesota Supreme Court, think should be upheld, is just not present in Massachusetts. And the more general statute, I think, is pretty dangerous to apply here.
0: Fascinating. Well, what we've heard from that answer from this whole discussion is that we need to educate ourselves, ladies and gentlemen, about these incredibly challenging problems about translating Uh, free speech and privacy in light of these new technologies, and one way to do it is through these incredible debates. We are so proud at the Constitution Center for our partnership with the Federalist Society and the American Constitution Society. There is no other organization in America that is bringing together these great constitutional groups for these civil, informed, necessary discussions. This conversation will be broadcast as a podcast. Uh, It's our We the People podcast. I want you to listen to them and subscribe. Every week I get to call up the top liberal and conservative scholars in America to cast light on the incredibly important issues before us and we're going to continue to travel around the country and build on the interactive Constitution. The takeaway is my request that you join the National Constitution Center. You are lifelong learners, and you must become emissaries for this important mission of constitutional education at any level uh, is fine, but go to the website, sign up for the podcast, the videos, the interactive Constitution, and become part of this great project. We're going to come back to L.A., and we're going to come back to the West... Uh, coast uh, next year and keep this great series going. In the meantime, follow us online as we travel across the country on our constitutional path, spreading light on the gloriously important questions that face our country today. Do you I have want to give a
2: constitution bus you're driving? Yeah. Constitution bus? Yeah. And uh, a train. It's
0: one of those flying cars, actually. Oh. It just soars <laughs> above the, the tawdry discourse and is it, so, is elevates. It, is uh, self driving flying uh, I cannot car? drive a flying car. It's a self flying car. It's really nice. cool and it flies above the constitutional ethos. I we just have saw to get... Jeff
3: as a superhero there no, for No, no, definitely not. It's
0: a, it's a sad excuse for a, a flying car driver. We must give the last word to Judge Alex Kaczynski. Why you've written these inspiring opinions, remind us why it is that free speech and privacy are so necessary for the preservation of liberty.
1: Uh, it is uh, at the root of who we are. It's at the root of our political system. Uh, Our um, uh, free minds uh, are the only way to preserve all of our other liberties. If we don't have these things, uh, everything else will be lost.
0: Please join me in thanking our wonderful guests. Thank you all for coming. Today's show was engineered by Jason Gregory and produced by Nicandro Iannacci. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich and Tom Donnelly. Continue today's conversation on Facebook and Twitter using @constitution_ctr. Sign up to receive Constitution Weekly, our email roundup of constitutional news and debate at bit.ly forward slash Constitution Weekly. Please subscribe to We the People and our companion podcast live at America's Town Hall on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. We the People is a member of Slate's Panoply Network. Check out the full roster of podcasts at panoply.fm. And finally, Despite that inspiring congressional charter, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. That means we receive little government support. We rely on the generosity and engagement and commitment and passion of people around the country who are also inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. Please consider becoming a member to support our work, including this podcast. Visit constitutioncenter.org to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.